I'm Charlie Wilmoth. I'm David Todd. And welcome to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. Welcome to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. As always, I'm with Charlie Wilmoth. I'm David Todd. And Charlie, today we've got a special guest. That's right, David. Uh, today our special guest is Sam Dingman. He runs a podcast about the Baltimore Orioles called Baltimoreans which you can find at baltimoreanspodcast.wordpress.com. And if you're wondering why we are having uh, on an Orioles podcaster, well, actually, he, he uh, Sam talked to me a couple days ago, asked me to come on his podcast. And, and generally what my attitude is, if somebody wants me to give opinions about baseball, is just like, oh, what's your podcast? I'll, I'll be there. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, so I did it, and I, I found out it's actually a, a really good podcast. And what the basic theme of the podcast is, is is talking about what it's like to be a fan of a really bad team. And this is something that Pirates fans can definitely relate to. Sam, welcome, first of all. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to be here. Sam, I love the, uh, I love the Baltimoreans name. Where'd that come from? Ah, well, uh, myself and uh, I do the show with my very dear friend and fellow all-weather fan, as we call ourselves, Alan Smith. And um, we had wanted to do an Orioles podcast for a long time, and we wanted to um, we wanted to find something that sort of captured the whimsy, which we'd like to think we bring to the show, but also the um, severe amount of stupidity that we often feel we possess in continuing to sign up for another season of uh, self-deception. And I believe it was a G-chat conversation, and it was literally as simple as, like, we need something that conveys the fact that it is moronic to, oh, wait, I have an idea. (laughs) (laughs) So your your theme of the podcast has to do with the all-weather fan, and as a Pirates fan, when when I heard that, I was immediately nodding my head, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, uh, yeah, and I, I of course, uh, love to talk to you guys more about how it syncs up with your point of view on things. But basically, uh, the thing that Alan and I realized that we agreed on is that despite the overwhelming evidence indicating that the good ship Orioles is a rudderless vessel, <laughs> uh, basically uh, ping-ponging off an endless series of icebergs, um, we somehow find ourselves every season completely buying the hype, not just on on fan sites, but in, you know, the the quote unquote legitimate press, which is, you know, the various beat writers that follow the team who uh, and this is nothing against their work. But, you know, their job is to try to make news that gives the fans hope, um, whether they're talking about the uh, possibility, however slim, that we may sign Prince Fielder, which, of course, was never going to happen. Or, uh, you know, the the fact that um, two years ago, Derek Lee had a really great second half. So that means that he may be due for a resurgence with us. No matter how much we like to think that we follow the team seriously and take a lot of pride in our knowledge of the organization, um, which would indicate that we know that those things aren't true. We believe it. And we go into every season feeling like maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year where it all fits together. And, and what do we know after all? We're not in the dugout. And I guess we kind of realized that uh, the fact that he and I feel a, a kind of special camaraderie about that must mean that there are other people out there who kind of enjoy this, this sort of ridiculous double think that you do as a fan of a, of a really subpar team where you you 
you be- you believe at the same time as you don't believe. And so we thought, uh, it, you know, it makes us feel so much better about the situation to talk to each other. Maybe we should put this show together and see if we can find some kindred spirits out there. Hey, Sam, let me ask you a question about that. You talked about uh, buying in every year. And one of the things Charlie and I do on the blog is we, you know, we try to be critical analysts and critical as in uh, having a keen eye as opposed to, to being uh, negative. But yeah. oftentimes that keen eye leads you to be negative. And right. we've had a discussion on the, our blog over the past month about kind of how that go, how that uh, process goes, and and how we come to the conclusions that we come to. But at the same time, we caveat everything with, uh, yes, we're not in the dugout, we're not privy to all the conversations that happen. How much do you find, you know, sitting there and and, and watching a team lack success for such a continued period of time as both the Orioles and the Pirates have? Uh, how much of that do you say? Well, it's not that important to not be there. You can still have critical analysis uh, and, and hopefully a sense of humor with it versus, well, they know better than we know. Well, it, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating question because, um, you know, one of the things uh, that has been particularly unique about this season of Orioles baseball to address the elephant in the room is that uh, somehow we have ended up starting the season 24 and 14 and are tied for first place in the AL East. Which is somehow a piece of information that Alan and I, uh, and I think a lot of other Orioles fans, don't really know how to process because going into the season and looking at the team on paper, we, I think, rightfully figured we were in for another season of heartache. And, you know, there are some uh, sort of statistically based uh, reexaminations of that going on. A lot of people are talking about how, uh, as much as Dan Duquette was kind of mocked, for the sort of small bore moves that he made. What he did this year uh, that previous front offices haven't been able to do is instead of trying to sell the fans a bill of goods on making a a really outsized bet on some washed-up veteran, what he actually did this year was to make a lot of very small tweaks that minimized weakness. So I think, you know, there is... And I think that if you look at the combination of that with the continued advancement of age or bad contracts, or, um, you know, uh, crazy managers. In the case of Boston that's going on (laughs) around the rest of the league, it has created a window of opportunity. So there is all that kind of stuff. But I think, uh, you know, more what, what has been interesting for me is to read all these articles about how the Orioles clubhouse is supposedly just a very loose place, and people are picking each other up. And there's not as much of a collective sense of dread or how did we all end up here on this team. Um, well, I, I would counter with that's because they're 28 and 14 or whatever it is, 20, yeah. you know, as opposed to uh, cause and effect. It's maybe effect and cause. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, it's one of those things where it, it always becomes a chicken and egg question. But the thing that Alan and I have been marveling at a lot is, you know, you look at the game that they won last night against Kansas city, or an even better example is the, the now, the now famous 17 inning game against Boston, where Chris Davis ended up pitching and getting the win. Those are games that, you know, for years we have watched the Orioles uh, just, you know, to the to the observers I give up ultimately. And we're not talking about a roster even as recently that, that's all that different from games like that as recently as last year. And yet this team somehow believes that it can hang in there and win those games, whereas they didn't in the past. 
Sam, uh, could, could you maybe talk about what you mean by small tweaks uh, that 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 keep weaknesses from from taking over? What are some examples of that? Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, so last year, uh, the, the most glaring example for me is Mark Reynolds, who um, is obviously a very frustrating player, capable of hitting the ball a country mile, but just so woefully inept on defense and strikes out so much that you begin to wonder pretty quickly if it's worth the trade-off. Um, so last year, we did not really have another feasible option at third base. And so we just kept running him out there and let him continue to make errors as the season went on. But this year, Dan Duquette signed Wilson Bedemit to a two-year deal, which made a lot of us balk. And then also uh, picked up this, uh, this Rule 5 guy, Ryan Flaherty. But so all of a sudden now, if Reynolds isn't hitting, um, I'm sorry, if he's not fielding well, he can be DH'd much more easily or, given the way that Betamete has been hitting, uh, benched. And Re Reynolds is hurt right now, but he was getting benched even before that. And so you get into a situation where the removal of that power bat from the lineup is not taking away <laughs> one of the few shreds of offensive credibility we have, but is actually being replaced with somebody who, on balance, makes the team a lot stronger. And we've got a couple guys like that this year. So I think the, the effect that that's had, well, and actually, sorry, another thing is um, the, by, by stocking the roster with guys like that, and Matt Lindstrom in the bullpen is another example, Darren O'Day, it has made it so that the, the whereas in the past we had big high-profile guys taking up pretty significant roster spots, what we've done this year is we've said to our young players who have been due to arrive for a couple years now, okay, we have shored up the rest of the holes in the boat. It's on you guys to come through now. And so far, everybody's really responded. And that has been a much better formula than guaranteeing Derek Lee and Vladimir Guerrero the three and four slots in the order every night. <laughs> hey, Sam, talk to us about the money issue because – I know people in Baltimore, uh, you know, bitch and moan about Angelos and, and what he's done to the team, but there's been no lack of investment. And certainly in the American League East, uh, yeah. that's a, you know, that's you're playing with big guns in that in that division, whereas, you know, we're playing more with pop guns. Uh, <laughs> but the the Bob Nutting saga in Pittsburgh is everybody in Pittsburgh just bemoans their fate that they have a quote unquote cheap owner. Right. And. I, I would imagine it might be even more frustrating to watch a team that is actually spending money at you know the higher levels of the game perform underperform expectations kind of every year versus at least in Pittsburgh people can at least look and, and blame on or just point to limited resources and say that's the reason Pittsburgh doesn't compete. So it's uh, one of the other points from which uh, Alan and I's decision to start doing the podcast came from was we were. Uh, into our cups one evening and, you know, got into one of those jags where we started saying, like, why, why are baseball teams giant corporations? What if, what if baseball teams were like cooperatives? So they, they really had to serve the fans, man. And we came up with this idea to uh, see if we could somehow tap into, because, you know, you cannot find, it's impossible to find an Orioles fan who would say to you, like, oh, you know, Angelos isn't doing that bad a job. It, it, they just don't exist. Um, and if they do, I will throw them into the sea. <laughs> so we had this idea that like, what if we started a Kickstarter and we just got people to pledge 
$5 at a time, $10 at a time, $20 at a time? Could we find enough people to where it would add up to an amount of money where Peter Angelos would be so staggered by the amount of money people were willing to pay to get him out of town? You know, maybe we could really make some changes around here, or get on his radar. So you were deep into the drink. <laughs> well, there's this place, and they have a really nice happy hour special. Next time you guys come to New York, we'll uh, we'll go to check it out. <laughs> but um, that is unfortunately the best alternative we've been able to come up with. You know, it's a very popular parlor game amongst <laughs> Orioles fans to speculate that uh, Cal Ripken is just crouching in the corner with $500 million in his pocket waiting to buy the team the second Angelos uh, either shuffles off the old mortal coil or uh, comes to his senses about what he has done to an entire city. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's totally maddening. And, you know, I mean, some people like to point to the fact that there have been instances where he did lay out significant amounts of money and got burned either because... Uh, you know, Rafael Palmero and Miguel Tejada ended up being juicers or Albert Bell quit and the list goes on. But it's, to be honest, outside of a crowdsourced campaign to shock him to his senses, uh, we do not have a lot of good ideas for how to make the change. <laughs> uh, Sam, you've had, uh, you've had me on your podcast. You had a really good interview with a Royals blogger. Uh, recently on your podcast as well, oh, and then of, yeah. of course, uh, Orioles are your rooting interest. Which team would you say has the best of those three has the best chance of pulling together a raise like Ron and being competitive for an extended period of time? Well, you know, it, it's an excellent question. I mean, being more of an American League fan, I'm I'm somewhat more familiar with the prospects uh, coming up through the system uh, in Kansas City. And, I mean, Billy Butler's a guy I've really liked for a long time. Um, I'd actually really love for him to be traded to the Orioles, uh, if anybody in the front office is listening. But I think Billy Butler's really great. Um, Hosmer is a total beast. Moustakis, um, to me, and especially, you know, playing in the uh, AL Central, um, I would like to think offensively that they have a good shot to compete uh, and to compete relatively soon. Just based on divisions, it has just always seemed to me that uh, Kansas City, given the uh, relative weakness of the surrounding competition, if they could get all those guys up to the major leagues and contributing at the level they're capable of, to me, seems the most likely to pull off an upset. On the other hand, <laughs> perhaps my own team ha will prove me wrong. I, I certainly don't think we're going to continue to lead the division for the rest of the season. But my hope for the season was uh, 80 wins for the Orioles this year. And, you know, we're already more than a quarter of the way there. So <laughs> competence should not be as far away as I was hoping. Would, would it, uh, I think I would throw my hands up in the air. And I, I don't know. I mean, Pirate fans throw their hands up in the air because the Pirates have been bad for so long. I almost feel like it, for the Orioles, it's maybe not quite regardless of what they do. But having to play against the Yankees and the Red Sox and Tampa, uh, and Tampa obviously for different reasons, but, uh, and then, you know, Toronto's a very good They're right no now. either, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, it's almost unfair. I, you know, I would just feel like, you know, the arms race in the American League East is basically the arms race in baseball, 
Yeah. And for the Orioles, you just kind of come at it at such a disadvantage, particularly with the unbalanced schedule, uh, all those things. Does that uh, have the people in Baltimore clamoring for a different type of uh, playoff structure or you know some kind of situation that maybe makes life a little bit easier? <laughs> well, um, I have a, a, a what I consider to be a very strong proposal for a southeastern division, if anybody... <laughs> <laughs> in the commissioner's office is interested, but I figure, you know, we get the Orioles, the Nats, the Marlins and the Rays and the Braves together. And that could be kind of a uh, competitive division. Although I, I wouldn't want to have to face the Braves year in and year out. Um, but yeah, the, the competition with those big guns in the American league East is just disgusting. And I mean, the Rays, I have to say, it's kind of fun to watch because the, the ways that they have, I mean, it's been fun to watch everybody adopt Joe Madden's infield shifts this year because people are like, oh, hey, this works. So I, I actually find it kind of fun to compete against the Rays, both because the Orioles, for some reason, always seem to play them pretty close. And it, you, there's more the sense that they're coming by it honestly. But we, you know, basically at this point have just had to accept the fact that if we're able to win uh, a series against New York or Boston, that is what we're going to have to satisfy ourselves with in lieu of any hope of a postseason appearance, because it, it is, I mean, it is just overwhelming. And it does not help, if I might add, that when either of those teams, New York or Boston, come to Baltimore, there is more cheering when Dustin Pedroia's name is announced for the starting lineup than there is when any Oriole gets a hit in the game. So, that that part of it just kind of throws a little salt in the wound, makes things a little bit uh, a little bit more difficult to deal with. So, uh, Sam, I'd like to close by sort of flipping around a question that you asked me yesterday. And what I want to ask is, is there any percentage of your fandom that is rooted in the idea that because you've waited out such a long time, you've waited out the Orioles for such a long time that when they finally do win, uh, you know, they finally do go back to the playoffs, whether that be this year or five years from now or 10 years from now, that it's going to be extra sweet as a result. Yes, uh, absolutely. And completely. I mean, it certainly it certainly hasn't always been that way. But, uh, you know, I mean, because when I when I started, well, I guess I started rooting for the Orioles in like 1990 or so is when I started sort of paying attention. So and they were not they were no great shakes then. But, you know, all through the the early and mid to late 90s, they were a pretty credible team. But my my definite uh, kind of underdog pride has hardened these last 14 years. But I think it kind of in general, it gets at a little bit of a larger thing for me. This doesn't sound too cheesy. Um, which is that, you know, I think of it kind of like, almost like romantic relationships. It's like, um, you, my conversation with the Orioles as a fan from year to year, uh, is kind of a conversation with myself about my life. Cause I've had a lot of things that, you know, I thought were going to go the right way and didn't, whether it was my fault or the fault of larger powers than I'm capable of controlling, um, and the Orioles are kind of a reliable companion in that. And it's mm. like, we're kind of trying to get it done together and <laughs> the world's a little tougher than we thought it was going to be, but we're still showing up every day and still playing all nine innings. And so if one of us makes it one day, uh, <laughs> that'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam, any, uh, any, b before we get out of here, any, uh, 
<clears throat> aftertaste. I don't know exactly how old you are, but uh, do do R- Orioles fans look at the Pirates a little bit differently than uh, another National League team because the '71 or '79 or that's so long ago, nobody cares. <laughs> well, uh, I just turned thirty, so I that's uh, a little bit before my time. Um, <laughs> to be honest, you know, I, I have been so obsessed with the idea of winning. Uh, <laughs> winning that 82nd or 83rd game that the idea of playing in the World Series to me, I'd be like, you know what? Uh, may the best man win. Let's all have some champagne afterwards. <laughs> that, that's how I feel about it right now. <laughs> uh, Sam Dingman runs the new Orioles-related podcast, losing-related podcast, Baltimoreans <laughs> at baltimoreans.wordpress.com. It's a new podcast, but I really recommend you check it out. There's plenty for Pirates fans to get into there. Sam, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and to have discovered Buck's Dugout. So I'll be reading along. Thanks again to Sam, Sam Digman for joining us there. Uh, Charlie and I are going to spend about 10 or 15 minutes here just chatting on the current state of affairs. And Charlie, yesterday about 4 o'clock, the news of the day, I think caught people a little bit by surprise, not necessarily that uh, the nation is in uproar uh, with the move, but Alex Presley gets sent down. We are you know, 40 games into the season. Uh, what are your thoughts on that decision and where we stand? Well, it's, it's kind of odd in a way if you think about it in terms of who the worst hitters on the team are. And I, can, I think you can make a pretty compelling case that there are three or four who have been worse than Presley. But, you know, he's been bad. And, uh, you know, after the beginning of the season where he had basically a bunch of infield singles that led to a 300 average, an empty 300 average after the first couple of weeks, he really hasn't done much at all. Without knowing exactly what what their problems with him are in terms of his coaching and and how best he can get better, uh, it's hard to really comment on the move except to say that you know he didn't hit well at all and you know if you don't hit well at all, eventually you wound up released or you wind up in AAA and that's that's what's happened to him. Yeah, I think there are two interesting things for me that came out of this. One is. Presley essentially got removed from the lineup seven to ten days ago. Mm-hmm. And I think from the point where he got taken out of the lineup, he started twice. And they said he was working on some swing mechanics. They were, you know, they, they say all the things you say when a guy gets taken out of the lineup, that he's working on things to give him a chance to get this. And then hopefully a guy then gets a chance to go put that back in practice. So he didn't get that opportunity. So, A, that surprised me that apparently, you know, this decision was made after 30 games and then it's a question of, you know, where is he better served to spend his time on the bench in Pittsburgh or down in Indianapolis? So I, so in that respect, maybe longer term, it's better for him and his development to go back down to Indianapolis, see if he can regain gain his hitting stroke and, and build his confidence, and then have an opportunity to come back up some point later in the season, which I'm sure he will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I know I remember sending a tweet because I got reamed for it. Uh, about five days before that happened, that it really looked like Presley was being overmatched. And instead of slashing the ball, which he did from the day he came up, kind of in that Toronto series, I think it was his first series when he was up last year, you just see his quick hands through the zone and surprising power, I thought, for a smaller guy. But just really attacking the ball, slashing the ball, we just didn't see that the past 
two to three weeks, really. And he did look overmatched. So in that sense, I think uh, it, it makes some sense to me. The second aspect, and I think this is probably the more interesting one, and this relates directly to the post you put up this morning, is the Pirates made a decision to send Alex Presley down. And if they had an opportunity to move other guys out of the lineup, a variety of guys, they would do it. But they don't have any options. You know, first of all, let's just dismiss the trade market on May 15th because it's not really there. It's not going to germinate. Guys aren't going to trade prospects. Guys aren't going to move veterans who might be able to add value because it's just too early in the season for teams to make those kind of decisions. So the trade market's not viable at this point in the year. And if you just look internally, there's nothing. There's nothing. It's, you know, we're talking about bringing up Jake Fox or Matt Haig. These are not uh, th- these are not good problems. These are bad problems because if there was a guy down in Indianapolis who was going to contribute, he obviously would have been up a month ago. So uh, y- it's interesting. It just means that the, the, the third point, I guess, is that it means they, they felt they had a long enough time to evaluate Alex Presley. And I would say you've had a long enough time to evaluate Clint Barmas. But the point is you can't move Clint Barmas because nobody else can play the position. So – you know, the negative aspect of things is, you know, 17 and 20, awfully good. But, man, there just don't seem to be any, uh, you know, solutions to this off the offensive woes. I, I, I got to disagree with – I can agree with part of what you said and disagree with part of it. And the, the part I disagree with is that it's – it's uh, I think it's too early to give up on Barmas, not because I'm a big fan of Barmas or because I'm, I'm particularly optimistic that – he's going to stop getting destroyed like he has been this year, but because you've invested $10.5 million over two years in the guy, you can't really give up on him after six weeks. Oh, you know, oh, it's yeah, just too but, big an investment. Yeah. I, your point, I buy exactly. And I wrote yesterday on a post, I said, Barmas is going to get a, a rope and at least until August because of the two year contract, which is a whole nother topic, which was insanely stupid. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's there, the but that. Yes. Barmas isn't going anywhere. Nobody else is going anywhere either. But I, I guess part of the problem, and I, I'm not necessarily suggesting they give up on Barmas. It's just uh, I, the relative point I think I was trying to make in that is Clint Hurdle says, you, you know, you need a certain amount of time to make evaluations on guys and you don't want to pull the trigger too quickly. And I think based on everything I've heard him say over the two years he's been involved, he pulled the qu- tr- trigger much more quickly on Alex Presley than I would have expected. I suppose that's true, although you can always just get Alex Presley back. He's able to be optioned, um, whereas if, if you decide that Barmas isn't, isn't your shortstop, he's probably gone forever. Um, I guess you know Pirates fans can argue about whether that would be a good thing or not, but in, in my opinion, it's, it's too early to say that it would be. Uh, but I do agree with you about Indianapolis's the, the problems in, in the high minors. I mean, Indianapolis basically is the equivalent – of the Indianapolis offense is the equivalent of the Pittsburgh offense in the International League right now. Um, they're the worst hitting team in the International League, and you combine that with the worst hitting team in the major leagues, and I mean, you got a really big problem. And it does not, it does not, uh, you know, speak well of, of Neil Huntington's ability to put together a team and acquire hitters. Yeah, I, I think it speaks volumes. To the fact, uh, you know, people have written about this. Dan Kovacevic had beat the drum a bit last year about the whole time here, the Pirates have not uh, had a shortstop in the organization. And they go out and they sign Barmas. They haven't developed one. There's hope for Jordy Mercer. But, mm-hmm. you know, so we still can look at the box score every day, and Jordy Mercer's not playing shortstop every day in Indianapolis. 
Uh, Chase Darno's playing a lot of shortstop, and maybe there's some hope for Chase Darno. But I don't think any Pirate fan thinks that those either one of those guys is going to be a, a seven to ten year fix at that position. And you just go around the diamond, just as you said. Uh, look at who's there in Pittsburgh, and look at who's there in Indianapolis. And he just—it it really ha—it ha- it hasn't happened. He hasn't put the guys together. And you can almost go down to Altoona and say, you know, you can go further into the organization and still yep. not see it. And I think that's maybe beyond worrisome at this point. Yeah, I, it is. I mean, you have to go all the way down to West Virginia to really be seeing a whole whole lot of, of interesting offense. I don't know. Maybe we're being too depressing. Should we should we talk about the pitching? Maybe we should talk about the pitching. You know, let's yeah, let's talk about the pitching a little <laughs> bit because <clears throat> let's talk about Evan Meek. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't think you understand the point of this exercise, David. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, but that's fine. Evan Meek. Go. Well, let's talk about a couple things because we got. We, I've been getting banged a little bit, and you've been getting banged a little bit for being a bit depressing. And this team at 17 and 20, we both probably would have signed up for it after 37 games. Sure, that's true. The problem with 37 games and being 17 and 20 is I said before the season, my prediction was 69 wins. I think you picked 72 or 73, maybe a tad higher than that. I would stick to 69 wins. And, you know, I I feel like I'm going to be right on point. And it's because of the offense. But let's say the pitching has been extraordinary and J-Mac continues to give good outings. But I I got in a little bit of a, a conversation on the blog about does every team have a guy like James McDonald? And I went through and I picked out the you know 28 guys or 29 guys in the National League who are 28 and under who are James McDonald type pitchers. Mm-hmm. And you know McDonald's uh, he has been very good. Obviously Bedard and Burnett have been generally very good. Uh, I, I think AJ's really done a good job. I mean the St. Louis start was a was horrible, but you, you know toss that one out. Yeah, it doesn't concern me fantastic. at all. Fantastic. Bedard striking out a lot more guys than we thought. Good to see him get through last night's uh, outing with you know without any more physical problems. Gave up a couple home runs. Uh, and Pirate pitchers have been giving up home runs a little bit more recently. But it, I think we pointed out the fact that I think they were .3 per nine innings at some point early in the season. And you just knew that was going to regress a little bit uh, back toward the mean. But let me ask you your thoughts on <clears throat> Charlie Morton, Kevin Correa, Brad Lincoln, and the the group down in Indianapolis. Where do the Pirates? Where do you think they're going to end up in July in terms of the who's going to be the back two guys in the rotation? I mean, I guess Morton's a given, but what do you think of his performance? And then who's going to be the other guy? Uh, I think Morton's been fine. Um, you know, you still want him to to be able to take a step forward and hopefully do a little bit better than he's done. You know, it's it's easy to get carried away with with what pitchers are doing right now simply because. Pitchers are doing well all around the, all around the league. That's that's just how things are working in this offensive context. You know, it's a small sample. Charlie Morton's ERA plus right now is 91. You know, just fine for a starter, but nothing to write home about. And you, you'd like to hope that he finds that extra gear uh, and you know continues to work through the mechanical problems that have seemed to plague him at, at various points this season. But yeah, he's done enough that that he's definitely still going to be there. And I, I still have you know at least some hope for him. You know, as for Correa, I, I think, you know, it's it's fairly straightforward. And if you don't want to, like I said on the blog, if you don't want to hear a diatribe about Kevin Correa again, which I understand, then, you know, think of it in terms of, of Brad Lincoln. Now, Brad Lincoln probably does not have what it takes to take the ball every fifth day and pitch six or seven innings over an extended period of time. Do you think that? I, I do because of his because of his secondary pitches, but I I, I think that he deserves a, sh- a chance at this point. I and mean, you might or 
more even more than him deserving a chance, which I, I guess what what he deserves is not really relevant to us. But you know the Pirates should give him one because there's there's really no point in in saving that fifth spot for Correa anymore. And you know maybe Lincoln takes the ball and runs with it. You know you you don't know at this point. Uh, I think at the very least he looks like he could be a good reliever, and you know maybe he can become a good starter too. And now is now is the time to find out. Uh, no question, now is the time to find out. I, Correa, I'm happy to move him to the bullpen for some period of time. Uh, he's going to get lost in the shuffle here. I, I said at the beginning of the season, I think you keep him around for insurance based on injury history of the Pirate pitchers and any pitchers in, in this sport. Uh, you keep Correa around and he has value till the All-Star break. And after the All-Star break, I don't really care because at that point, Rudy Owens, Jeff Locke, you're going to have to see what you have with them and we'll see where the Pirates stand in terms of being in contention. But if things have started to slip by the wayside, then, yeah, if you release Kevin Correa on July 15th versus him being a free agent on September 30th, you know, no, no harm done. So, yeah, I'm with you on, on Lincoln getting some starts. I do think that Brad Lincoln has shown that he can now be a valuable guy. It was interesting to hear after his start in Miami that he said he didn't ever have to go uh, to, to what? He threw two change-ups? Was that, is that what it was? Yeah, it wasn't very many. Yeah, he said he said he didn't need him, and you know, look, God bless you if you know <laughs> your stuff's working and you have confidence, then go do it. And I, th- I but I do think your point right is right is he doesn't have that next pitch, so it'll be interesting to see if he can continually perform at that level. But I do think he has shown us something that means that Brad Lincoln's going to be part of the team for the next couple of years. Uh, he can be Juan Cruz or he can be Jason Grilly. Uh, he can be kind of the seventh, eighth inning guy to get to whomever is the closer, uh, assuming we do ch- trade Joel Hanrahan this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think he's a valuable guy, and I think that's a good step forward because coming into the season, I didn't think that was necessarily the case. Right. He looked like a fringe player you know, a year ago or six months ago, and now he's emerged as somebody who, if he's going to throw 96-mile-an-hour darts like this, he, he can be a good a good bullpen piece at the very least, and that's a lot more than we thought we were going to get. Uh, or maybe a little bit more than we thought we were going to get a few months ago. So, so good for him. What do you think of of Owen's chances if he were to have to step into the rotation at some point soon? I guess the uh, the, the the brutally honest answer is I haven't seen him pitch enough to have a a, a feeling for his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've seen Jeff Locke pitch enough to have a feeling for his stuff, and he's mm-hmm. going to have to get by on being a crafty lefty. And I just hate to bank on somebody getting by on being crafty. Uh, Locke is, uh, both those guys have obviously done well in Indianapolis and we've talked about, we've written about uh, at length, kind of repeating the level at a, you know, not a, not an old age, but it, they're you're repeating a level and they're dominating it. We had some debate about whether the peripherals indicate that, you know, their performance is what it is and, and that it's actually is pretty good and they are pretty dominating or are they just kind of getting by because they're not a lot of strikeouts and, uh, so my answer with Owens is I'm happy to see him in September, get kind of or August, whenever it may be. I mean, we're not really overly worried about service time for any of these guys at nah. this point. Bring him up in, in August or September, get, just like the end of last year. It was unfortunate that the whole team broke down and and the Pirates fell so quickly out of contention. The small upside of that was Jeff Locke got a couple starts. You got to see some other players perform. 
And, you know, I think that should be the plan this year is to have Rudy Owens and Jeff Locke and, you know, at some point Justin Wilson all come up here and throw some innings and see how they get how, how it goes. I just don't see the ceiling of those guys as being anything near where I thought it was two years ago. And so uh, not that fifth starters aren't useful. Somebody said you'd rather have you'd rather have a Kevin Correa or Rudy Owens for five hundred thousand dollars than for four million dollars. So there's some value in that. But I just I don't see them being uh, contributing. And I'll throw in on top of that is I, you know, I've been a fan of AJ Burnett. I've liked what he's done. I don't have any expectations that the Pirates would try to move him at the trade deadline. I think they'd have to be overwhelmed. Now the value may be that his contract is very cheap, and somebody may really give you something because you're not getting him as a rental for three and a half, two and a half months. You're getting him next year for the cost of I don't I don't know what it is, but it's, eight million, I think. Yeah, seven or eight million. So he has real value, and I, I would much prefer the Pirates keep him, but that'll be an interesting discussion. Obviously, Bedard is on the table. If somebody wants him, I'm sure he, he'll be available, assuming the Pirates aren't right in the middle of it. Right. It'll be a shame to lose him, but but you know he's only here for one year, so we've got to be realistic about that. Let's touch on Meek for a second. He went in last night. I, I didn't get to see the game. How did his stuff look? I mean, it didn't look like his. It didn't look to me like his command was really there. I mean, obviously it wasn't. He hit a bat, hit a batter, walked two other guys, and then the bases clearing double that he gave up to Laroche was, you know, nowhere near. Who is that Laroche guy? Because he seems really good. Yeah, yeah, seems like a really fast starter. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know who this guy is. I, I read he was something, something like seven for twelve with four doubles and a homer and. You know, a hundred ribbies against the Pirates so far this year. Oh, geez, is that right? Is it something like that? It, yeah. It, it seemed like every time he was coming up, it was something. But yeah, I mean, it, Meek was, I mean, not really throwing anywhere near where he was supposed to be be throwing in some cases, and you know, I I just have no idea what he was doing in the game. So what happens on uh, tomorrow? What day is today? Thursday. So what happens tomorrow when the Pirates make their roster move? What's your best guess? Well, I mean, we're heading into Detroit for an interleague series where, where the Pirates will have to have the DH. I mean, they're certainly going to, uh, you know, send a pitcher down and call up a hitter. I, I would think what they would do is send Meek back down and and call up Jake Fox, but I, I guess we'll have to see. What, what do you think? I think that's what they do, too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm ready for them to make this move of, of – <laughs> And it's harder to say after last night with Josh Harrison driving in a run. <laughs> and, and, you know, he had a, a, a double to win a game in the 12th inning a few days ago, uh, drives in a run last night, and then hits a two-run homer. So it'll be interesting, but I do think that they need to send one of those two guys down. And I think Fox is getting a little bit of an audition here so that uh, I think there's a chance that if he performs well at all, you don't see him go down at the deadline and you see either Navarro or Harrison go down just to get more playing time and maybe somebody else take that spot. But yeah, I don't I mean even though Fox is mired in this, you know, slump right now, uh ever since we got on the campaign to bring him up, he, he hasn't had a hit <laughs> I think in his last, you know, 20 at bats. But uh but yeah, I think he is the guy to come up and I think the only other alternative would be Matt Haig. So, uh I I think you'll see Fox and and they'll have to make a a 40-man roster move and that'll be interesting as well. I posted a poll on the website and everybody loves a poll and we got a lot of responses to that and Welker and McCutcheon were the the overwhelming I think favorites to get DFA'd but I think I had mistakenly well I didn't mistakenly put McCutcheon up there but I don't think McCutcheon can be uh, moved because he's on the 15-day DL is that right so he can't be designated in this move 
Uh, I think that might. I'm thinking the the move that that would they would probably make is to put him on the 60 day DL, right? Yeah, I just don't see that happening with the strained oblique from batting practice. I I was kind of surprised they put him on the 15 day to begin with, but this is not an arm injury and this is not a 60 day type of injury. I just can't imagine they'll shut down the rest of his season effectively. Right. Well, anyway, it's it's not as if they have any shortage of choices, really. I mean, I think they could probably. They could probably designate Meek for assignment and not run into any problems there. Oh, that's uh, an, that's an interesting idea. I didn't even think of that. That's, and and I guess you know we I didn't put uh, McLeod or Correa up on that list, and I think the people who voted for other were certainly thinking of those two guys. I just think, as you have said, with with it's a slightly different situation, obviously, than Barmus because he's got a two year deal. But and on May fifteenth, the guys you sign in the offseason, you're just not going to give up on them. And and Correa for for I think you know insurance purposes you don't give you get you don't release him so, um, but yeah I'll go with uh, that's interesting now I, I, Meek is a good choice but I, I'm still gonna I will come back and uh, say that they designate uh, I'm gonna go against uh, uh, either William or Wilbur or Vlad and then I'm gonna say it's gonna be Welker yeah I don't think it's gonna be Welker I mean the the, the for the reasons that that Wilbur gave the um the you know the crazy fastball velocity the great stuff he has i think the pirates will want to keep him and i think that that's that's the sort of player who will probably get seized on waivers if if he is designated for assignment i don't know i mean i i think that that you know seeing something mildly surprising like Correa or meek I, I that neither of those would really shock me uh, I'm not. I'm not predicting that, but I'm saying that I, I might keep my eyes out for that simply because, like, the depth that Correa provides is no longer really needed. You know, with that's one nice thing about guys like Owens and and Locke and Wilson. I've I've poo pooed their success so far, but but one nice thing about having them perform well is that it. You know, somebody like Correa no longer serves much of a purpose on the roster, even as insurance. Do we think there's a there, there's a possibility that Matt Haig gets designated? Um. Maybe. I, I think that the Pirates and other major league teams will not be are not as enamored with him as most fans are. Um, you know, statistically, it, what what he's doing is is it does not really suggest that he can be a major league first baseman, at least not in the starting role. Um, so that might make sense as well. All right, so let's let's close out by highlighting some of the good stuff here. We we just avoid talking about the guys who've been great and the guys who've been great. Are Jason Juan Cruz, uh, Jason Grilly, Joel Hanrahan, and you got to throw in there, uh, Charlie. You got to throw in Jared Hughes now. The guy's been really good. 20, 20 and two thirds innings. He's uh, he's he's got a WHIP of one point one six. He's not striking out a ton of guys, but that's not the guy he is. He's a ground ball pitcher, but he's been he's uh, I guess the the one thing the one caveat I would throw in is he's given up eight runs and only three of them have been earned. So there's a little bit of something there that maybe doesn't tell the whole picture if you just look at his ERA. But that group as a whole, and and I'll even toss Reese up in there as well, they've really done the job. Yeah, uh, I I guess that's true. I think that in general the the starters might not be due for that much regression, but the bullpen probably unfortunately is there. If you just look at their ERAs right now, which obviously are not always the best stats to deal with for – for relievers, but they're they're not matching up with their strikeout and walk numbers, with the possible exception of Grilly, who really has been uh, tremendous. So, you know, they're also giving up a, a fair number of homers. I would expect them to come back to earth 
a little bit. But yeah, they've been really good and they've definitely held it together so far. All right, so off to Detroit, seventeen and twenty. Any uh, any closing thoughts? Um, uh, well, obviously the Nationals tonight, and then off to Detroit. Right. Well, I, I guess the the key thing here is um, I was I was doing an interview for uh, Trip Live Radio yesterday, and they asked me uh, what would be a good performance as we finish out the Washington series, and and then we have the Detroit series coming up after that, and if the Pirates can can reel off a few wins here. They have a potential to come home and be a 500 team, which I, I think would be great to see at this late point in the season, and it might lead to a lot of excitement at PNC Park. But we'll yep. see. And and uh, this is this is the point last year where they had the little hiccup. They were they were 18 and 17. They lost I think six in a row to go five games under 500, and that was the low point of the season until late July. They mm-hmm. had a great run from the end of May. Uh, the latter part of May up until the middle of July. So we'll we'll hope they can uh, replicate that again this year. Right. Well, good. Uh, thanks for listening to the Bucks Dugout podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Bucks Dugout. Find David on Twitter at DTR Pirates. And leave us your comments in the thread at BucksDugout.com. Thanks. Thanks.